It really called into question the current model of a lot of Spanish TV. So they're starting at the gutter. La Portada podcast with Simon Hunter and Lily Mayers. We are here to read all of the Spanish news so that you don't have to. It's crazy. I've just been watching the Spanish media ecosystem fall apart at the seams. Just delete me talking about my wife. Yeah. I just want to talk about the, all the optics. Let's talk the drama, let's talk the drama. <laughs> my apologies to any drunk Brits out there who may have been offended. Our Twitter thread is cursed. I mean, yeah, go back and listen to our coverage last no, no, week. No, don't, no, <laughs> ¿Listos? Sí. Vamos allá. Hello, welcome to La Portada. My name is Lily Mayers, and the seasoned giri across the table from me is my co-host Simon Hunter. On today's La Portada, we'll be looking at the trans law, a great wine heist, and we speak with school principal Tom Davidson about how Ukrainian students are fitting in at a Spanish school. But before we get into this week's episode, Simon, tell me, how are you? I'm exhausted, Lily. Yeah, it's been why is that? well, it's been quite a week. There's been a lot going <laughs> Something's on. Something's been happening. Yeah, there's been a lot of news, and then of course. The, uh, we're, we're enjoying the last episode of the last season of the UK, uh, which is just—it's uh, <laughs> been—it's just every every. Incident, it's a real nail biter. It really is. Every time you think, well, this couldn't get any more bizarre, and there couldn't be a, a weirder news story, they they managed to um, excel themselves. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a busy week. How about you? What have you been up to? Uh, hasn't been too busy for me. I finished a painting. I'm in leisurely land. <laughs> lovely stuff. Well, before we do anything else, we have to say a massive thank you to all our patrons who are supporting us on Patreon. This week we got the support of Christian, Chris, Stephen, Andrew, Laura, Fiona, Aidan, Mike aka dad and david so please if you're not doing so already please go and support us at patreon.com forward slash la portada pod as you know all we ask for is the cost of a relaxing cup of cafe con leche in plaza mayor and i'm happy to say that we are doing very well for coffee we are both very well caffeinated aren't we Lily? <laughs> uh, yep. don't forget if you support us on patreon you not only get the episode on fridays instead of sundays but you will also enjoy bonus content in episode two i told my story about how how I lost 11,000 euros by going on the telly. Last week, I did a deep dive into Spanish newspapers with media analyst Adrian Bono. And this week, I take a look at Spanish TV with my friend and former colleague, Eneco Ruiz Jiménez. Now, that bonus content will go as a separate episode on Patreon. Uh, I'll be direct on the uh, Patreon page uh, La Portada Pod and I really recommend you check it out we break down all the different channels and we have a good old moan about things like uh, intrusive advertising and ridiculous timetables well let's get into this week's episode Last year, the Equality Minister, Irene Montero, described this law as one that takes a giant step in trans and LGBTI rights. But Spain's trans law, as it's known, has this week seen some major hurdles. The draft law, put together by PSOE and its junior coalition partner, Unidos Podemos, had mutual support when first launched, but now it's being reviewed for amendments and facing doubts not only from across the aisle, but from within the coalition. 
Before we get into the politics, for those who aren't familiar with the law, if passed, it would allow anyone aged 14 and over to change their gender on official documents without the need for hormone treatment or medical reports. It would also ban conversion practices. It would assist in pregnancies for lesbian and bisexual women and trans people who can become pregnant. It would allow for both mothers in unmarried same-sex female couples to register births. It would protect the rights of intersex people and ensure diversity in school curriculums. So the Equality Minister says the government must keep working hard to guarantee that the trans law is approved at the end of the year. But Simon, how likely is that? Well, it looks like this might get dragged out. It's quite a strange turn of events because it was around this time last year that the Socialist Party was celebrating its 40th anniversary uh, and it was championing this legislation. I mean, when the socialists are in power in Spain, we tend to see these big advances in terms of social uh, social rights. I mean, we've seen it in the past with you know, gay marriage. Spain was one of the first countries to legalise gay marriage. Uh, and now we're seeing it in terms of these LGBTI rights. But I think what could be going on here is something of a power struggle. I mean, the um, the Equality Ministry is currently headed up, as you mentioned, Lily, by Irene Montero from Unidas Podemos, but it used to be headed up by Carmen Calvo. Um, she is now on the uh, Equality uh, Congressional Committee, so she's kind of still in the mix in terms of, uh, you know, passing this legislation, but she is quite outspoken and opposed to just how far this legislation mm. goes, so there, there's a suggestion that this is a sort of a bit of a power struggle between the two partners in the uh, coalition government, which is the Socialist Party and, of course, uh, Unidas Podemos. The possibility that this process might not be done by the end of the year, which is what the parties had promised, has already um, caused one victim, and that's Carla Antonelli. And she's a veteran transsexual activist, and she's the only transsexual to have held a parliamentary role in Spain. Uh, She was in the Madrid Assembly from uh, 2011 to 2021. But on Tuesday, she quit the party in protest at the extended time for for the amendments. So far, what we've seen with this uh, legislation is on October the 7th, uh, the Congress rejected all of the amendments that have been presented by the Conservative Popular Party and uh, far-right Vox. I mean, basically, they were trying to reject the entire legislation just to get it... um, uh, get it all thrown out. Um, amendments could still be uh, accepted, but mm, this, if this, if this period gets extended again, which is what the um, PP and Vox say that they want to do, well, what Carla uh, Antonelli is arguing is that if it runs into next year, then it could get sidelined uh, in the spring because we're looking at regional and municipal elections. If it gets sidelined then and then it starts to run into the summer, mm. well, we're pretty much looking at a time when we're going to have a general election in Spain mm. and it could get sidelined even further. What seems to have happened here, although no one has kind of come out and said it out loud, is that there's a sector within the Socialist Party that is aligned with feminist groups who have reacted very badly to this legislation. In fact, interestingly, the uh, 8M, the 8th of March feminist march for the first time this year, actually there were separate marches. Um, mm. There was a split um, among the demonstrators over mm, not just the uh, plans to uh, abolish prostitution in Spain, but also over this trans law. And that sector 
uh, of feminists, but also apparently reportedly within the Socialist Party, they are arguing that this new legislation erases women by having serious consequences on women's rights. It hides the existence of biological sex. And um, they are also calling for limits on the decisions that can be made by minors that could affect the rest of their lives. Because let's not forget, this actually, this this proposed law actually also includes um, a provision for people aged 12 to 14 who could legally change their sex and name on the civil registry if they have managed to secure uh, legal authorization to go uh, to do so so obviously for some people that's uh, that just goes too far there's also um, concerns about what it will mean for um victims of gender uh, violence so what what would that mean so if you are um facing a case of gender violence against your partner uh, and then your partner changes sex would that technically mean that you would be no longer liable for prosecution because it's no longer a gender uh, issue because now you're the same sex as that as that but person but wouldn't that be then a like a relationship dispute because you can have domestic violence in a same sex couple yeah, but you would be falling foul of uh, gender of gender violence legislation. But there is a there is a provision in the law that would mean that that could you know the abusers are not going to be able to retroactively avoid prosecution for gender violence crimes. But there are concerns about the legality of some of these provisions uh, within the law, and that the socialists are worried they're going to be challenged uh, in the courts if the le- legislation goes through uh, in its current form. I mean, it should also be pointed out that there, there's this is a normal process for amendments to be added to laws and this law hasn't actually gone through the same number of amendments that other major laws uh, would go through Mm. but it is something because it's a flagship policy particularly for the uh, uh, for Unidas Ponemos there is a certain sort of uh, anxiety for it to get um, rushed through Um, and we saw that again this week from Yolanda Diaz who is uh, the one of uh, Spain's Deputy Prime Minister, she was putting on the pressure this week. She said on Wednesday, the trans law is a key law for our country for a fundamental reason. It's like the labour reforms. It gives rights to people who are currently deprived of them. It's urgent that Spain moves it forward. And that was obviously echoed by Irene Montero, the minister from uh, the Equality Ministry, who is very, very keen to get it rushed through. But it looks like, and this is a great phrase that was reported in the newspapers this week, that the PSOE might be doing some kind of parliamentary filibustering uh, to slow down the progress of this bill. And now to our heist story. In October last year, 45 bottles of wine valued at 1.6 million euros disappeared from Atrio, a Michelin-starred hotel and restaurant at Cáceres, Extremadura. Police say the night the wine disappeared, a woman who was later found to be staying at the hotel under a fake Swiss ID had reserved a table for two at the hotel's restaurant. Once the couple had their dinner, both were given a tour of the restaurant's wine cellar, invited by staff in what's a common practice for the restaurant. Later that night, the man went back down to the cellar, accessing it with a key card, copied or stolen, unclear, and he put the 45 bottles of wine in backpacks. Distracting the reception staff upstairs was his partner, the woman, who was requesting a meal after the kitchen had closed. 
By the time the wine had been discovered missing the next day, the couple had already checked out of the hotel. Nine months of searching later, police were able to catch the couple who'd made their way to Croatia. They were identified as 48-year-old Konstantin Dimitru, a Dutch and Romanian national, and 29-year-old Priscilla Lara Guevara from Mexico. The man Dimitru had been twice arrested for attempting to steal wine from gourmet shops in Madrid's Salamanca neighbourhood. He'd also reportedly been caught stealing from a duty-free store in Geneva Airport. He appeared in court this week for one of those previous cases and... That doesn't look good for his greater defence, does it, Simon? No, it doesn't. I, re- <laughs> I really love this story and I'd love to know why he chose high-value drinks to, yeah. to steal. I mean, it should be... He's like, should this be will noted. be my niche. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the, the 45 bottles of wine never turned up. I mean, yes, I'd like to think... this is the best part. The police <laughs> haven't found the wine. Exactly. Where is it stashed? I'd love to think that he drank at least some of them, but I'm, I'm assuming that he sold them on. There's probably a good black market out there for this uh, this wine. But yeah, 1.6 million euros. One of, the, one of the bottles was worth hundreds of thousands of euros. This, mm. this restaurant must be doing incredibly well to be sitting on that kind. Of yes, but stock. lacking security. Well, lacking security, but he got that key card somehow. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I assume these these kind of thefts aren't very common because you certainly this is certainly the only one that I can think of. But yeah, it's such a it's such very a great Ocean's story. Eleven, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a total heist. The story this week is that from his jail in Catharis, because both uh, Dimitru and uh, Guevara, they're being held in prison until they go on trial for the theft of the wine. But he was in court this week uh, via video link in Madrid because in 2019, he is accused of going into La Vigna uh, and stealing a 5,000 euro bottle of Scotch whiskey. Uh, He was seen in, well, a figure is seen, because of course this is all at the time when we're all wearing COVID Mm. masks. Someone is seen going into the store and um, then are left in this part of the store, the kind of exclusive part of the store where some of the really expensive um, bottles are. Um, he's out of shot of the camera, but this hand kind of appears and is seen to take a bottle. <laughs> then the figure in the video leaves the store, apparently not carrying anything. Um, he denied it was him, but the, the shop assistant this week in the in the trial said, no, 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 it was definitely him. Mm. In fact, when he returned to the store, they recognised him and that was when he was arrested. So... It was thanks to this case mm. that the the modus operandi of this case that actually put the investigators on his trail mm. in the first place, and not only uh, is he is he facing court for this theft, but also uh, he's facing a third case where he's supposed to have stolen a bottle of wine from a store in Geneva Airport that was valued at twelve thousand euros. Um, I, I pitched this story this week to the Times, and obviously the 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 news the new story the new mm. part of the story this week is that he was in court in Madrid for this other case, and it was this case that put him onto the um, that put the investigators onto him. But uh, never wanting to miss a trick for a bit of uh, um, a sensational headline, they headlined the story: uh, Mexican beauty queen, uh, yeah. key suspect in in uh, in in vintage wine theft, and, <laughs> which was kind of an interesting way to go with the story because that wasn't the new part, you know. We, knew, yeah. we know all that, uh, but it but it, it just goes to show that that's the part that you know. It, it's just it's just such a fantastic story that these two are kind of swanning around and doing these these massive um, wine heists. Someone I normally don't read the comments on my on my news stories, but someone. I 
I, this time I did, and someone someone said, "How exactly was she distracting the uh, the yeah. hotel staff?" <laughs> so she was sort of you know flirting with this guy. But but no, like, she, she what, was just it, asking for a sandwich. Yeah, like it's like an old fashioned black and white movie where they only have one person manning a desk, and if they're distracted. The whole hotel has no other like security in place. That's what the, the the police report kind of implied. This woman was distracting them, and that's how they believe the man had gone into the cellar with his fake or copied key card, popped all these. I mean, how do you fit forty five wine bottles in <laughs> multiple backpacks? He he apparently wrapped towels around them to to make sure they didn't clink together or smash. Yeah, carefully. That, that's still, carefully is the that's answer. still a man <laughs> hobbling through a reception with what, like that's four backpack. yeah. <laughs> four backpacks, and just being like, nothing to see here, you know. And then the next day, leaving with them all. I don't know if they're brazen or stupid though, because both in the in, so in this case, police believe they had visited the restaurant a number, like at least three times before the mm. actual heist. Yep. In in the case that you're talking about, in did you say 2019? Yeah. He 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 went back to the store to try and get more. I mean, is that brazen or stupidity? Yeah, absolutely. Well, no, just probably thinking that he got away with it the first time and he'll get away with it again. I mean, for the theft of the whiskey, he's looking at 18 months of jail time and he's also going to pay uh, compensation. Well, he might have to pay if he, he's found guilty and might have to pay compensation about €3,700 to the owner of the shop and then about €1,500 to their insurer. So what I'm really interested to see is exactly what charges they're going to be facing for the uh, for yeah, the wine, massive. especially, of course, as they never found the bottles and never managed to recover it. I love also the the face masks; like everyone had to wear them. But what a perfect disguise for a theft! Well, to this week's interview, and our guest this week is Tom Davidson, the head of secondary at British International School, the Lady Elizabeth in Alicante. He's a loyal La Portada listener who got in touch after seeing a massive influx of new Ukrainian and Russian students at the school and thought we'd be interested to hear about their assimilation. Well, I certainly was. So here's that conversation. So welcome, Tom. Did you know that you're the first La Portada listener to become an interviewee on the podcast? Hey, well, that's 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 hugely exciting. It's um, ho- hopefully there's more of them to come, and uh, listeners that are enjoying, which I have been, uh, want to share and want to share their story about living in Spain and and part of what we enjoy about being in this great country. Oh, I love it. Well, thank you so much for getting in touch, and and this is such an interesting topic. So before we start talking about your new students, let's get an idea of how large Lady Elizabeth is and what kind of school it is. Well, Lady Elizabeth is um, an international school and we're on the Marina Alta. We're in a place called Benita Chell, which is just outside Javier um, on the Castablanca. And uh, we've been here for 35 years. We started off as a little British school, um, which was set up by a, a local lady and she wanted to offer families who had moved to the area a British education. But uh, we've grown and grown and now we're a school of 1300 students um, with 57 different nationalities in the school. A far cry from the little um, school that started on a Naya um, in, in Javier. And, and the school is private and predominantly speaks English, is that right? 
We are. We're, we, we're fee-paying and um, the language of instruction is English, though actually more and more of our parents are wanting the bilingual route. But yeah, mostly for our students and our families, what they want is the immersion in English. They want that gift of English when they leave the school. Okay. Uh, and before the war in Ukraine, how many Ukrainian students were there compared to now? Before the war in Ukraine, um, Ukrainians were our 25th largest nationality. They are now our fourth. So we've had a massive demographic shift. But it's not only Ukrainian families that we've been supporting and helping transition into the school. It's Russian families as well. For many Russian families, uh, the conflict has been um, a game changer for them as well. We've got families that are moving because they want to relocate. Um, They're not supporters of the current regime and they want a new start for their families. We have a new family that have just arrived from St. Petersburg and and they're very much that group of white Russian emigres that want to move and and escape, um, not only from the conflict, but from what is going on in their country. I think the impact of sanctions and the impact nationally within Russia is having an impact on a lot of these families. But yeah, we've moved from being, you know, uh, Ukrainians being a small group in the school to being the fourth largest. And that's come with, with challenges and opportunities. Let's get into those challenges and opportunities. First of all, when the students arrived, both the Ukrainian students and the Russian students, how did they seem? I mean, this is, I suppose, you know, potentially quite a traumatised group, though it is worth pointing out that these are relatively uh, privileged in terms of refugees. Not um, They're not on scholarships at this stage. These are people who can't afford to relocate and pay for private school fees in another country. But how did they arrive at the school and what sort of state were they in? No, absolutely. It, it puts a sharper focus to your admissions meetings when parents and children are talking about uh, being in bunkers um, the weeks before and they've made the move. And you're right, you know, these are families who have the wherewithal to be able to move and relocate and be able to access the school. Though, though we are offering scholarships for a number of students as well. Um, it is it is a challenge. You know, we are looking to integrate the students into the school alongside giving them the support that we they need, um, the support that we think these students struggling to adapt to a new country, a new environment um, will will require. I mean, we pride ourselves in the school at having a really positive induction process anyway. You know, we have counselling staff, we um, we have a, a tutor and a mentor system which guides our new students. But yeah, we've, we've spent a lot of time in ensuring that our new arrivals uh, are given that guidance and support. Kids together will always be kids together. They, they want to help each other. And it's a joy to see the, these new students arriving in the school and being welcomed. You know, even if they haven't got the English or the Spanish to be able to access the entire um, school community. We've got enough Russian speakers. Um, and though the Ukrainian families, um, clearly, you know, they speak Ukrainian as well, the vast majority speak Russian. So we're able to integrate and be offered that support pathway um, for, for these new students. So what was that first day like, the first day of term when these new students came in? How did your existing cohort take it you know how how were they was there a rush or was they were they giving them space on the playground for instance 
they were giving them space. I mean, we're lucky to have um, such a, bit, a large campus. You know, we've got lots of open spaces. We don't separate them. This was the, the joy of moving after the, the COVID regulations that we could go back to having um, open space playtime, patio time, where all the students could integrate. Um, it was busy, um, I guess is the short answer, but but fun to see big people beginning to make new friendships. Because we have so many new students in the school anyway, every year we have um, you know up to 200 new students. We have natural leavers, but it is the norm in international schools to have this kind of students who will arrive. In, in, in all um, international schools, you have a churn where, you know, because of contracts, because of families changing, um, you know, jobs and countries, they will move around. But it was, it was a positive atmosphere and you could see those new friendships being forged across nationalities. We make sure that all the new students have a buddy for the day. Hopefully they will have a language that they share and we ensure that that happens. But they were guiding them and encouraging them and making sure they knew where they were going, at least finding a space for that first moment. I think it's really interesting that these new students find themselves at a new English-speaking school in Spain and the best people they can get along with or communicate with are the Russian students who may not have the same like mind as them or are coming from a different point of view from the wall. You know, have you seen that the Russian students and the Ukrainian students are getting along the best? <laughs> they are. I mean, it's it's interesting, you know, adolescents in a school environment have, have many things going on. They're struggling to adapt to a, a new environment, a new teaching group, a new schools. And, and being an adolescent is a challenge in itself. What they want to do is get through the day and enjoy. The, the shared understanding that they're here to learn and the shared understanding that they're here to have a safe space where everybody is supported is made really, really clear. And we have that conversation with all our students, irrespective of where they come from. And we build that culture, you know, whatever your religion, your identity, your sexuality, your ethnicity, you know, your your, your opinion and your beliefs are important. And, and we celebrate that like many, many international schools. You know, yes, there will always be some social conflict. But to be honest with it, it's more to do with finding a boyfriend or a girlfriend and finding your own space or, or wanting time to play football or who you support rather than it be a kind of national crisis, which seems, you know, they're very close to these students because they have um, family members who are involved. There's almost a sense of, look, I want to get on with my day and I want to find new friends and this is a new start and I want to embrace that. Not to bring something which is a, a national um, argument onto the school playground. You know, there is always going to be debate and there is always going to be times when students, you know, want to express that concerns. But, but to be honest with you, Generation Z, they want to get on with their day. The parents, yes, we've managed that more carefully and we need to support our parents in terms of making the right decisions as well and being supportive and understanding of each other. But I think the key to remember is that a lot of our uh, emigre Russian families are also not vocally supportive of the current regime as well and recognise that they're in an international Western European setting um, and and accept those norms as they are. Yeah, that makes sense. Um 
What about uh, what uh, what part of their integration has surprised you? Well, what surprised me, Lily, has been the way in which the kids have embraced the internationalism of the school. You know, imagine if if you're a Spanish or a British student and you've been in the school a number of years and you've grown up in that environment where you know predominantly your uh, your colleagues were were Spanish or British and you had a shared language between you because our Spanish families had been here long enough to acquire English and suddenly your classes are filled with a, a myriad of different nationalities um, but they've they've embraced it and what I've loved about the way in which students have embraced that that opportunity is suddenly they found out something that they didn't know about how cultures celebrate things or how cultures different to their own look identity. You know, what, what was a kind of not a closed mind setting, but a kind of more limited mind setting has been opened with talking to colleagues. But the friendship groups have been have been key. You know, I wander around the patio at lunch and break and you see groups of students and you can count, you know, five or six different mother tongues amongst one group. Now, they're all speaking English or Spanish. And they're sh- what they're talking about is not international geopolitics. They're talking about, you know, what happened the night before when they met down the beach, what, what they're planning today, the teachers they like, the teachers they don't like, what's for lunch, the minutiae and the normality of everyday life. And, and that's that's what we've got to give. You know, yes, we've got kids that have come from from what are horrific situations, but we offer them that normality. You know, the, the tyranny of the everyday takes over, which is I've got to get up. I've got to put my school uniform. I've got to clean my teeth. I've got to go to school. I've got to thrive. And that normality becomes the normality rather than the challenge that of which they've come from. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And um, what about the students who haven't quite grasped English yet? Do you can you see them using apps or computers to communicate together? Yeah, it's it's been some lovely moments when I've been watching lessons, and and I use it myself as well. Um, kids will use um, Microsoft Translate, which will um, you know they will use their phones, they'll use their devices to express themselves in their mother tongue if they can't quite get that point of view across. But but technology is the great help here. You know, um, my wife who teaches in in the primary school you know was learning some ukrainian words uh last night so she could use them with her new kids and it was key words you know to listen to sit down to share um and and her ukrainian kids were were laughing at her accent but that was the bridge that was getting them Mm. to the next step and if you're explaining technical terms and you've got to use um the mother of the mother tongue as the language of instruction that helps them to the next step you know using simple things like jargon sheets where you know imagine a, a subject like a science or a humanity where you've got lots of technical vocab you know we'll share those jargon sheets in translated form as well so they understand them but what you focus on is the skills you know you're practicing those skills of learning and collaborating and problem solving and irrespective of the language that you're you're used to using those skills are universal that's so cool. And how has the local community reacted to these influx of new families in their areas? Have they been supportive of them? Oh, yeah. You know, um, Javier, when when the conflict first um, 
broke out. You know, the, this area of Spain, along with many others, we opened our doors, you know, families and families within the school and the community and the teaching body, you know, welcomed migrant families and refugee families to um, to their houses. You know, the underbuilds and, and the apartments and the spare rooms were, were, were filled with, with people and, and many began to work and integrate locally. Now, where we are on the Costa Blanca, you know, there's a finite amount of work and as you move into off-season, there is there is more limited work so many of those families have moved on to to bigger conurbations to urban areas because there is work and support there um you know uh, but we've got a core that have remained and they've been made to feel welcome the international day that we held earlier in the year was a great celebration of the international and the school and we had the community come in um to offer support but also celebrate all those different nationalities and the ukrainian um you know table and the Ukrainian group at that event was was huge and they and they brought the joy and celebration of their identity and their culture in a respectful way to to the community and that's what we want we both want to support them and give them a safe space but also celebrate that identity and that culture and that language yeah beautiful so just lastly Tom I wondered if the new students have given you a new perspective on the war in Ukraine or on the importance of Spain's temporary protection program. Well, yeah, it has. You know, I'm really proud of, of how Spain have taken on this this temporary protection plan in in supporting families as well as the the whole of Europe. It's a responsibility we have in terms of offering safe spaces for these students and these families to thrive and to learn and, and to start again in a safe environment. I know that the likelihood is that many of these families, when the conflict ends, and and it will at some point, may wish to go back. But I hope we send them back with that outward-looking international mindset that, that we cherish as a school. We can't get enough of these good stories. So, Tom, thank you so much for your time today. No, absolutely. It's, it's, it's been a pleasure. What did you think, Simon? I thought it was great. I thought it was really, really interesting. Sounds like a super nice guy. Um, mm. Very interesting to hear. I, I particularly like the part about the, you know, how the Russians and the um, the Russians and the Ukrainians were getting on with each other, the students, yeah. and, and, and him talking about the different approach with the parents, which I thought was yes, quite funny. Yes. Obviously, them, yeah, keep it's them different apart. With the parents, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it might be more of an issue, but yeah, it's just it just kind of reminded me that kids are kids, basically, and kids, you know, kids' problems are yeah. kids' problems, yeah, yeah. and that, like he said, they're not necessarily too concerned about uh, geopolitical goings on in the in the no. wider world. But how lovely, and I think, and, and I and I hope it gives our listeners a bit more of a holistic idea of how the war in Ukraine is playing out in different countries in Europe. And Spain has taken a lot of people in on the temporary protection uh, policy. And, and as he said, a lot of the, the Russian families that have fled as well are, are of the same mind as those who've left Ukraine that don't want a part of it. So, you know, they, they do, I'm sure, share some feelings towards the war. Anyone that is doing anything to help Ukrainians or just has my, you know, un- undying respect. Our neighbours have taken in uh, a Ukrainian family. It's a, a woman and her son. They're absolutely just such nice people. Mm. Um, but they took them in, I reckon, before the summer. So that is, you know, now a good five, six months that they've been living with this family under their roof. As we all know, you see, you know, Spanish flats are not particularly large. <laughs> um, and to do that kind of thing is just, I, I just think it's a, an, an yeah. 
extraordinarily yeah. active kindness and the first time that i met them we took them out we lent them some bicycles and we all went out for a bike ride together and we stopped and had a coffee and i was just sitting there and i was just so angry i was just so angry mm. at the fact that they're in this situation that they've had to come leave their yeah. home leave their family um and have had their lives disrupted in this way and it just makes you think god you know but there but for the grace of god by uh, go i and that uh, this could happen so easily and that uh, a lot of the things that we take for granted are, are actually very fragile and how special that people are so generous to help as well Absolutely. Well, a quick media watch item for our listeners this week. There's a new show on Netflix called La Sagrada Familia or The Holy Family. Have you seen that yet, Simon? No, I haven't. I haven't even heard of it. Well, yeah, it popped up this week and it's a mystery, thriller, suspense, drama. It's beautifully shot and produced. There are eight episodes and the cast is some of the usual Spanish Netflix you know, actors that always come up. But there are some fresh faces too. I think it's really well written and I've only just started it, but I definitely would recommend. All right, well, now there's nothing left to do but get straight into Simon's News Roundup. A 24-year-old woman was arrested this week in Bilbao after she allegedly stole a newborn baby boy from his mother by pretending to be a nurse. The suspect reportedly entered the woman's room on Wednesday night and told the mother that she was taking the child away for tests. She had apparently tried to kidnap several other children at the hospital before finally managing to fool her victim. The baby was located the next morning having been left on the doormat of an apartment building some distance from the hospital. The woman was later arrested by the police and the authorities found items such as a baby carrier and a high chair in her apartment. The woman had also reportedly been telling people recently that she was pregnant. This week, members of the Invade the British Embassy Facebook group met with the British ambassador Hugh Elliott to discuss the ongoing driving licence debacle. The delegation of four was led by Pascal Siegmund, who set up the group in order to highlight the plight of residents of Spain who have been unable to drive since May, while the UK and Spain continue to negotiate post-Brexit changes. After their meeting at the British Embassy in Madrid, the group told the Olive Press that they felt they were listened to and that they had covered topics such as who is affected, the financial impact, challenges with taking a Spanish driving test and cost. They also questioned the timing and legality of the ban. The ambassador said after the meeting, we had a productive meeting with the group and it was valuable to be reminded again just how much the inability to drive is affecting people and to hear their members' personal stories. There is still no sign of an end to the negotiations or an end to the situation whereby these people cannot legally drive on the roads. However, the ambassador has promised a further update to the situation today, Friday, on the embassy's social media accounts. And Spain has piled in on the reaction to Liz Truss resigning. Like pretty much everyone else on the Twitter sphere, Spaniards all enjoyed making the same joke about how the lettuce had won <laughs> in reference to the live stream from the Daily Star of a lettuce next to a picture of 
former Prime Minister Liz Truss to see who would last the longest. Spain's Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez said that the resignation of Truss brought an end to an old-fashioned approach to combating the current economic crisis, in reference to her disastrous, uncosted plans to cut taxes for the wealthy. Sánchez's comments came after he pointed to the now ex-PM as showing how not to run a country during a recent debate in Congress. Beautiful, and that's it from our fourth episode of La Portada Season 2. This episode was recorded on October 21st in Madrid City. Your hosts were Simon Hunter and me, Lily Mayers, and providing mainly armchair punditry this week was Connor Doyle. <laughs> la lechuga! <laughs> Idiot. Uh, don't forget to get in touch. Our socials are at La Portada Pod and our email is laportadapod at gmail.com. Send us an email or a voice note if you want to be featured just like Tom was this week. You can also tweet us directly at Simon in Madrid and at Lily Mayers. And please, if you're not doing so already, support us at patreon.com forward slash la portada pod. As you know, all we ask for is the cost of a relaxing cup of café con leche in Plaza Mayor. And don't forget, there is bonus content for you to listen to this week if you are subscribing to us on Patreon. Check out my conversation with Eneko Ruiz Jiménez, where we break down everything you need to know and a bit more about Spanish television. Spoiler alert, Spanish television. It's not very good. <laughs> Hasta la semana que viene. Hasta luego. Hasta luego.